the title for the talk tonight is Nudging the Mind Back Home. <laughs> I think that's what we're doing. I, I see the practice actually in a very simple way. You know, I've said that I, I don't... I don't think of these practices or these teachings as very mystical or esoteric, but actually very simple and very practical, and sometimes even a little mechanical, (laughs) because it seems that the way to train the mind is, is very straightforward, really, in its practicality. And then, of course, as we do that, what actually emerges and feel very profound, very um, very mystical. <laughs> I, I was in India um, about four months ago. I was in India for about five weeks in the south of India in Tiruvannamalai. I have a deep connection with uh, Ramana Maharshi, one of the great saints, in, uh, Indian saints of the t- 20th century, who, di- who, who's, who died in 1950. And so I went to his uh, ashram, which I've, where I've been to before, and um, spent some time there, and stayed in a house about 10 minutes away from the ashram, and was going to the ashram each day with some friends. And one one day, one of the friends came back to tell me of a, a little um, incident that happened at the ashram that I unfortunately missed. But um, at the ashram in South India, there are lots of monkeys. There's a lot of monkey, monkey business. <laughs> There's a lot of... Uh, birds and peacocks and deer and, you know, wonderful animal life. And um, uh, this, my friend told me that outside, right in front of the ashram, there is what's called a tank where they collect water. It's quite a big tank. And there's a big sign in front of, by the tank about the ashram and about Ramana Maharshi and location of the of the ashram and the monkeys just love to sit up on the top of that sign and this day apparently it must have been a nice day or something but the monkeys were jumping into the tank and swimming <laughs> they would go up to the top of the sign and then jump in <laughs> and then there was a ladder as there are in tanks, there's a ladder, and then the monkeys would climb back up the ladder <laughs> and climb up the top of the sign and then jump back in again. And apparently we're having a really wonderful time playing in the, in the tank. And I, I actually did see a photograph of this little uh, monkey head sticking out of the water. It was so very cute. And um, when I was told the story, it reminded me of my own way that I think about mindfulness, which I've mentioned before, 
where you know um, if we're at the bottom of a well or we're in the water that somebody will throw a rope and then we can climb out of the well or the hole or whatever it is and that's the rope of mindfulness and so I was thinking um, that these, the way the monkeys were coming out of the tank was like the, the ladder of mindfulness. You know, they were finding their, their way out because they needed a way out. I think they, they, the walls of the tank were, you know, just quite uh, metal, metal and smooth. And how would the monkeys have gotten out of the water once they jumped in? But they knew that there was this way out. Very smart. <laughs> and and it I I see that it's actually the same practice that we're doing. We need to find the way out, right? When we get into these tricky situations, there is a way out. <laughs> and these teachings point to the mindfulness that when we return back, when we connect back with our mindful presence, awareness, that this can lead us out, out of our misery, out of our pain, out of our suffering. And so in this way, you know, our practice is really simple, and it's something that I hear myself saying to people in the interviews again and again, you know, this is actually very simple. You just return back to your experience, bring your mindfulness back, and then see what happens. And see what happens when you arrive back here, when you're actually back here with your experience. Once we are present, once the mindful presence is here, everything can be revealed from there. Everything that we need to know, everything that we need to understand will be revealed. It just takes a great deal of trust. It takes a great deal of trust in that simplicity. The, the, the trust in mindful presence, the trust in awareness, that that as long as we get here, everything's going to be revealed that you need to know. But the hard part, it seems, is to get back, you know, find that ladder or find that rope that's going to bring us back up after we submerge down into our confusion or our lostness or our distractions or memories where we get very identified or our plans of the future. And it's sometimes it's very murky. Sometimes we get not only do we jump in the tank, but we go way under, <laughs> and you know, kind of swirl around for a while, and you know, wonder how, where am I? And what, you know, I remember one time when I was um, uh, went on a rafting trip in the Yosemite National Park in California, and well, it was some rapids. I don't do that very often, but <laughs> went on some rapids. <laughs> and I mean, I don't do it because I'm a little scared of what will happen if, you know, the boat goes over. And this particular time, the boat went over <laughs> and I went in and I was tumbling. And it, 
And it's very interesting how those experiences plant a very strong memory in the mind. I remember it as if it was happening in this moment. It was under and swirling, and I had to find my way out, right? So it came to me, and, you know, we get very present. We get very alert when we're in kind of a crisis situation. And I got, you know, it was the thought was, find your way out, (laughs) go to the top. And I put my hand up because I figured that momentum would somehow orient me to the t- to up. And I went up. And when my hand was a little out of the water, somebody grabbed it <laughs> and pulled me up into the boat. I didn't know whether the boat was still there. I didn't know whether anybody was there. I just knew I had to go up, <laughs> get out. So... That's what we're we're wanting to do is to find some way to get out, get out of the of the submersion of the of the swirling of the lostness of the confusion that we find ourselves in, which we call in this practice the identification. When we get identified, we get stuck to we the old metaphor of the Velcro mind. You know, Ruth Dennison, one of our elder teachers, calls it the Velcro mind, where you get st- it's sticky. We, we, we think that what we're thinking and experiencing is the whole reality. And, and we get very confused about which way is out, out of that, that there is even a way out, that there is even another reality, that there's a whole other way that we may be able to our situation than the one that we're believing or assuming. So the practice, the teachings say again and again that what we're trying to do is then to incline the mind. It's just I love this. I love this word of inclining the mind. Incline the mind away and what the Buddha says we need to incline away from are these strong forces of mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, confusion. And all the manifestations of greed, which is the desire and the lust and uh, the, the grasping after the, 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 the attractive and the beautiful uh, aspects of our life, and the hatred and the aversion, pushing it away, and hating, not liking, and wanting to control. And then the delusion where we fall asleep. We just kind of lose connection. We don't really know where we are or what's going on. And we, a lot of times we don't even care. You know, <laughs> it's just it's a little easier there, you know, not to be so awake to kind of go to sleep in our lives. So the Buddha talks about these three strong forces of mind called the taints, the taints of mind. And in our, with our mindfulness, we're beginning to identify when these forces, when these strong patterns are present. And we can only do that when there's some detachment, when we're just able to be in the mindfulness where we're not completely 
completely identified with our mind, with our experience. There has to be some way that we can just a little bit step out. And that's actually what we can call grace, a moment of grace. Because as we know, when we look around in the world, there are many, many people who don't know how to step out, even for an instant. And the mind completely takes over in these difficult states, and the suffering is immense in people's lives. And there's no sense of any relief from that or any way out of that. And so if somehow one wakes up that there is the possibility of being somewhat disengaged, somewhat separated from our experience, this is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's phenomenal that there's the possibility of seeing that what's happening in the mind and happening in experience isn't the total thing, isn't the whole reality. Our, 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 as you see, you know, you see it all through the day, you know, what the mind is thinking and believing and perceiving, and it seems so real about another person, about ourselves, about our life at home, about our future, about our health, what's going to happen to us, our money, or whatever. We, we, it seems so real, so believable. And to have the possibility of just for one minute, one moment, this mindful presence that can just see what's happening for what it is. Oh, I'm thinking. Oh, I'm planning or fantasizing or I'm worrying or I'm in my fear or um, I'm really, even this, I'm really caught right now. Even knowing that, we're already not completely caught. We're already just out a little bit. This, is, this, the, this moment of mindfulness, this moment of knowing our experience, the Buddha says, is the most powerful thing that can happen for a human mind. One moment, one moment. Say you go back to sleep for another two years. <laughs> but you had that moment, and that moment makes a very deep impression in the psyche because you know. You know that it's possible to have some disidentification. And that's the wonderful thing about retreats is that you do have those kinds of experiences here. You're walking in the bush or listening to a bird or looking at the water or this when we're doing our standing meditation this evening, you know, the sounds, you know, just the sounds are so so bright and, and so strong and it just seemed like there was nothing but sound. You know, sound filling the whole space and the wind and the feel of the coolness on the 
begin like this moments, moments where there's nothing else, that's all there is, that immediacy, the immediacy of that realness. Not fabricated, not imagined, not made up, not mind created, just what it is. Coolness and sound that you can't even really put words on. In fact, only, only poetry can start to describe that kind of experience. It's so beyond words, really, right? It's so, it's so immediate and so present that the mind just goes silent because there's no job there for the mind. The mind, the thinking mind, doesn't have to do anything but fully experience, fully know. No identification, just that, just the, the isness. It's called isness or suchness. The, the thatness. <laughs> you, know, you start making up <laughs> different words. <laughs> you know, thisness. <laughs> You know, just it's just, <laughs> and we all have we all have those experiences. It's not you know again, it's not anything um, anything so mystical. I mean, it can feel mystical, but it's not. It's sort of actually very ordinary when we're here, when we're present. Or the stars. You know, I was hoping that you know. I know some people go to bed a little bit earlier, but I, I hope that you've had the opportunity to see the stars the last couple of nights. Um, last night, at first, when the, the, it started to get dark, there was a, some mist in the sky, and so the stars weren't quite as bright as the night before. And then all of a sudden, this was just around, just before 9 o'clock, all of a sudden the mist lifted, and the stars were just brilliant again. Just this brilliant dancing kind of vibration of light and dark in the sky. Exquisite. Of course, I never see anything like that anywhere else in the world, but here at Temawata, literally, I'm not exaggerating, it's only here that I see that kind, this kind of sky. It's just, it's phenomenal. So I, I hope that, you know, you've had an opportunity to to stand and look <laughs> and open to the sky, the night sky, and the stillness, and the quiet sounds that are coming forth in the bush at that time. The night is such a different experience than the day when everything starts to settle down and get very, very still. And sometimes we can even feel a stillness inside that we can't touch during the day because of the effect, the impact of the night on our, on our mind and our being. And so these kinds of experiences really are possible for us when, when the mind starts to quiet down, when these forces, these habit 
patterns, these habits of the greed and the hatred and the delusion, the dullness of the mind, when we start to wake up out of those patterns, we wake up, it's really what it is, we wake up out of the patterns, and then we begin to see things in a different light. We see things in a different way. This is vipassana. We see things clearly. We see things as they are. It's immediacy in the present, the here and now. So we're inclining our mind away from these difficult states. And I like the word inclining because it's, very, it's, it's not we yank our mind. <laughs> it's not that we annihilate our mind. It's not that we cut off our mind, you know, and, and sometimes we can actually experience because we have this assumption that somehow we have to do that, we can energetically feel like we're actually cutting off or yanking, yanking our attention away from our thoughts and our minds back to the breath. Gotta get back to the breath, back to my back to my body. You know, it can feel really, you know, uh, strong and um, sometimes uh, a, a little gr- aggressive. We're aggressive with ourselves, but but that's not that's extra, right? That's that's reinforcing the aversion in the mind. That's reinforcing the very pattern that we're thinking we want to stop. Aversion to the aversion. So the inclining, you know, the nudging, that's why I like the nudging, you know, just nudging the mind back home, nudging the mind back home, back into the, the mindful presence where we know what's happening. We know what's happening. And mindfulness simply means we know. That's all mindfulness means. It's not, again, not anything big, not any kind of big experience. It's not a state. Mindfulness isn't a state. Mindfulness is just a moment of knowing our experience. Just knowing this, this quality of cognition, this cognition that is not the intellect, but it is awareness itself that knows, that can know what's happening. So we're just inclining the mind back to this illuminated presence. It's, it's illuminated. It's light. Light. The light is shining on our experience. Sometimes we call it an object. You know, the thought or the sensation or emotion or a sound or a sight. We call that the object of our mindfulness. It doesn't have to really be an object because sometimes then we can think that there's something really there you know, that we're looking at, but actually there's nothing there. But it's some experience, some experience is happening. And so we turn the light of our awareness on that. It's like it's like opening a closet at night, wanting to know what's in the closet, and you open the closet, you have your torch, and you shine your torch in the closet to see what's in there. Looking around, <laughs> it's mindfulness. That's the same thing. We're looking into a, a space that we haven't been before, we haven't looked before. 
so these, these mind states of greed and hatred and delusion, you know, they're not actually wrong. They're not bad. They're just strategies of mind. They're, they're patterns of mind that have been developed over time due to certain conditions, due to certain causes and conditions in our life. We have these kind of developed these certain patternings, ways of being, that ha- then we think, we've, we learned, that somehow these strategies were going to help us in some way. They were going to get us what we wanted. This controlling of, you know, wanting and pushing away, wanting and pushing away. Somehow we'd get what we want. But we, 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 we see as we grow up and get older that we're still suffering. <laughs> you know, that these the strategies aren't really working anymore. It's not that they're bad. They're not that they're wrong. We don't need to give ourselves a hard time when we see this arising in our mind. We just see that they cause us suffering. They have when we follow these states of mind, when we follow, we 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 feel the pain, we feel the suffering. We don't want that. We want to come out of it. We want to find our way back home. And so we can look at our situation much more pragmatically. Doesn't that we don't have to give ourselves a hard time, make ourselves wrong, put ourselves down, think that we're terrible people because we have greed in the mind or, you know, hate in the mind or we're dull or deluded. (laughs) 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 You know that, you know, (laughs) if you you know Buddhist psychology, you know that one of those are going to be strong in your mind, right? You're either going to be very greedy, you're either going to be very aversive, or you're going to be very deluded. And one of those is stronger than the others. <laughs> it's just the way it is. <laughs> is anyone here uh, free of any of those? <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm an aversive type. Maybe you've already picked it up. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope it's not showing. (laughs) 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 Only Jeremy gets to to find out how aversive I am. (laughs) It all gets projected on (laughs) him behind the scenes. So it's nothing, you know, really, we, you know, we feel so much shame, really, you know, about our personality and what makes up our personality and these, what we call sometimes character defects. I hate that. (laughs) I think that is so misleading, you know, that we have character defects. You know, we just, we're just human beings. (laughs) We're just... We're just doing the best that we can, you know? We had certain conditions growing up, some of us really difficult, very painful, some not so painful, still influencing us very strongly, and, you know, here we are. This is who we got to be. (laughs) You know, we didn't, like, sign up for this. (laughs) 
you know, it's just where we find ourselves, you know. Somehow this personality got configured like this due to all those causes and those conditions. And so we just start to start to look and start to see and, you know, hopefully want to begin to understand, you know, so, so that we start to grow and expand and develop and become more of who we really are. You start to start to grow in to our potential, our potential as human beings. Surely this can't be it. <laughs> this can't be the sort of like what we're meant to evolve into. <laughs> There's got to be more <laughs> than this in this realm. And I really believe there is. I think, you know, we, we only are using 5% of our brain. 95% of our brain is still not really being used. I mean, what does that say about our potential? about our, our evolution as human beings. Mm-hmm. So we just want to look, you know, we just want to, you know, take a look. We just want to see, we want to kind of be curious about what's here. What's this all about? You know, who, who, who am I and how did I, how did this come to be in this configuration? What were the causes and what were the conditions and, and now what are the causes and conditions that are continuing to reinforce different patterns in my mind, in my personality, noticing the ones that are still giving me pain and causing consequences, causing harm and suffering, not only for myself but for other people as well. You know, because really every one of us, I think, wants to be happy. All beings, all beings want to be happy. Nobody wants to suffer. It's just that beings don't know how to come out of that suffering. The strategies that are used are not very good strategies. Those strategies seem to just cause more pain again and again and again. But we are really the, we're motivated to come out of that pain and that suffering, to find happiness, to find contentment. We just don't know how. We get lost, get confused. So we're learning. We're learning about this. one of my favorite um, suttas of the Buddhas and there's a lot in here and I I usually I think I read it on most retreats but I like to reflect on it and I like to have people reflect on it and it and it goes like this just as in the last it's Buddha just as in the last month of the rainy season in the autumn when the crops thicken A cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that side with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let the cows stray into the farmer's crops. 
So the Buddha says, so too I saw in these unskillful states of mind the seeds of suffering and in the wholesome, skillful states of mind the blessing of renunciation and purification. So we could see that if he's, he's talking here about the cows, if they wander into the farmer's field, he needs to take responsibility to get the cows back in his field because if he doesn't, there's going to be problem. Right? There's going to be a problem. So he, so in the same way, those are the we can think of the cows as the unskillful states of mind, or those those forces of mind that wander off, and that they, and in that he's saying it's just like the unskillful states of mind, or those forces of mind. They've got the seeds of suffering. We need to get the cows back home. We need to get them into the field. And then he says, just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of the tree, since he needs only, only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. And I really like this because it, sh- it, it really points to both the fact that when the states of mind are difficult, we need to pay attention and get the cows back home. But when the cows are actually in the field, you can rest by the root of the tree. You can relax. You don't have to do so much. You don't have to work so you only need to be mindful that the cows are there. <laughs> and, and I think that sometimes as we overreach the mindfulness, we, we work too hard, we put in too much effort. When Manindraji, my, my teacher, the ca- teacher from Calcutta, a little Indian teacher, also Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, he would say, when you're happy, be happy. Just be happy. And when you're not happy, then take a look and see what's going on. But when you're happy, be happy. And I think that sometimes we don't fully appreciate and fully enjoy those times when the cows are home, you know, when, when the mind is not really acting up, when you're feeling calm and you're feeling relaxed and things are going well and you feel a sense of ease and a sense of contentment and then relax but but don't let go of the mindfulness i think it's interesting there but the mindfulness it doesn't mean that you have to like okay i got to stand on guard because <laughs> at any moment something could happen you know <laughs> The, the worst could happen, so I've I got to really be alert, you know, and you can feel the tension in that. Relax. <laughs> it's almost like we're a little afraid to relax, right? I remember a time when I just thought, you know, right around the corner, yeah, things are okay right now, but, you know, just wait. <laughs> 
It's all going to come tumbling down again. <laughs> and, and, but there it is, you know, the kind of the fear, the aversion, the tension. You know, what about really looking to see what's here right now? Are the cows in the field? Are they not in the field? If they're in the field, relax by the root of the tree and just know the cows are there. Yeah, there's a mind, there's still going to be a mind state. There's still going to be thoughts. There's still going to be memories and plans, and uh, there's going to be feelings and impact of things that are happening. But it doesn't have to be troublesome. It's just life. It's just experience. It's just what happens being a human being. Life continues. Life moves on. But can we relax? And I think it's a really important because I, then the mind can be so active and and in in the forefront, you know, the, the, just that that kind of like, gotta stay on guard, the mind thing. I gotta stay on guard. But then when we come back and start to just look and see what's here, and you start to track that. You might say, oh yeah, okay, I'm, just, I'm sitting here. I'm hearing sounds. I'm breathing. There's some fluttering. My mind is quiet. Not much more going on. Even though the last, the last few moments the mind might have been saying, but be careful, stay on guard. And then when you actually take a look, let go of that thought, let go of that belief and just see what's here. It's not the way we think. It's not the way we imagine. It's only the mind with it putting an overlay on top of experience, coloring, coloring the experience with the mind state. It's not the way it necessarily is. This is sometimes we talk about this as going beyond the mind or behind the mind. I mean, we use these kind of funny spatial metaphors where, you know, it's, there's, there, you really can't go behind the mind or below the mind. But, you know, they, it does point. It points us in some way. It's like going underneath the mind. Like there's, there's, there's something else. And that something else isn't fabricated isn't created, it's just a settling in to the bare experience through the body, through the sensations, the sounds, the sights, the taste, the smell, the sensations of the physical realm. There may be thoughts coming and going, but they're not intruding, they're not gripping, they're not grabbing. The thoughts can just be in the background like a just a river of thought, not really making that much of an impression. I often think of that as like having a radio on in the back of a room. The radio's on, but I'm just doing what I need to be doing, washing the dishes or eating my food or sweeping the floor, and the radio's on, and I hear the radio. It's not like it has to, I have to turn off the radio. In fact, I can't. The radio's always on in the, in the, in the mind. But it's just kind of in the background. And sometimes there may be an announcement. <laughs> and you're kind of, here, oh yeah, 
You know, oh, I need to pay attention to that. And that's good, because there are things we need to pay attention to. <laughs> but, every, you know, we don't have to pay attention to everything <laughs> all the time that's going through the mind. You just kind of, yeah, just let it recede and let it be back there. Even I, I've sat a lot of three-month retreats and have always been quite, quite amazed that even after two months of intensive meditation, there's still the chattering, the, the go, you know, the going on, the, all the musings of the mind, da da da. It's amazing how it does not turn off. <laughs> it just doesn't turn off. And so, and so, we're really not. I, I, I mean, what I know now is that there's no point in trying to turn off the mind. <laughs> it's a, it's an impossible task. So we're not turning off the mind. We're just letting, wanting the mind to recede into the background so that reality, as it is, is in the foreground. The bare experience of, of what, what we're doing and what we're what's happening right here and now, what we're seeing and, and, and touching and hearing and, and uh, who, we're, who we're talking with and the, the conversations or the, the work we're engaged in or at times maybe even some planning. But how long do we need to plan for? You know, only five minutes maybe we need to plan. You know, we don't need to plan like the whole day, right? Yeah, so we plan for a few minutes and we put it down, you know? We're just planning and then it's just this kind of this much more engaged with the immediacy of of the way things are and then responding to what's needed in any given moment. It's very simple. We we start to come more into the, the simplicity. It's the simplicity and the ordinariness. It's not, again, it's not like life becomes so mystical. It's just that we're, we're here in our life, just with the simplicity of our, of our tasks and our relationships and things we're engaged in. This uh, Jack Cornfield, one of my, my colleagues and friends, he has a, one of his books is titled, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. That's really how it is. You know, it's just the, the basic machinations of life, the things that we're engaged in. But we're here for it. We're here for it. That's what we're wanting to do. Early in my practice, this was read out in one of the retreats, and I, I really... It's just something that I liked a lot. It really stayed with me. It's by Chang Su, and it's called The Empty Boat. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you, no one will seek to harm you. 
Since he judges no one, no one judges him. Such is the free one. His boat is empty. And then there's one more stance where he says, the person who empties their boat will flow like the Tao unseen. They will go about like life itself with no name and no home. Simple is the one without distinction. To all appearances they seem a fool. Their steps leave no trace. They have no power. They achieve nothing. Have no reputation. Since they judge no one, no one judges them. Such is the free one. Their boat is empty. So I think we're really trying to empty our boat. (laughs) You know that sense of, you know, inclining the mind away from these difficult states, recognizing that they're there, and then beginning to just know how to nudge the mind, nudge the mind away, nudge the mind into the present moment, nudge the mind into a more skillful state of love or kindness or care, generosity, compassion, just nudging the mind. This is very very powerful when we do that. And what motivates that, what, what, what brings that possibility for us to even be able to do that is already that which we are wanting to wake up, that which is already awake in us, that love that is already awakened in us, that wisdom that is already awakened in us, that's what's doing the nudging. The ego mind's not going to do it, because the ego mind doesn't want anything to change. It likes everything just the way it is. It likes everything very familiar, very in place, you know, all kind of ordered. But when something arises in us, emerges emerges in us that says, no, I don't want that anymore. It's too painful. It's too much suffering. And then something emerges that starts to nudge us towards more freedom towards more love, towards more harmony, that is the awake being. That is the awake essence. That is the presence. That is the love. And as I said, if that's already moving in you, that is a state of grace. That is a blessing. You are blessed (laughs) to have that already moving in your river of life, your river of your consciousness. And so we're really just wanting to wake up to what's there. Wake up to that. Wake up to that and then utilize. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, there it is. Let's bring some momentum to that. Bring some momentum to that. That, that love and that, that wisdom and that compassion. Just nudging it, you know, nudging it off. 
so that it's more in the forefront. The essential part of ourself is more in the forefront. And the old, patterned, conditioned self starts to recede into the background. And we start to feel into our life more with that loving presence, with the metta, with the compassion. That's what starts to lead. That's what starts to come forth more and more and more of the time and starts to inform our life and our relationships and our situations. And this is where we say the heart begins to open. The mind begins to open because it's not so gripped, it's not so identified, it's not so contracted. The mind starts to open, the heart starts to open because the mind and the heart are not separate. So as the mind loosens its grip, the heart begins to open, the defenses melt away, start to fall away and melt away, and the essential nature that we are starts to shine through. we grow into the potential of who we are as whole and beautiful and liberated and lovely beings that we are. I want to end with a a little story. And... um, I like the story and I want to put it here because it really shows in a way um, this response, the possibility of this kind of response and the immediacy of a situation of how the heart in its openness and fullness can come forth to meet what's happening when the mind isn't so caught and gripped in its old conditioning. It's called Loving Kindness Meditation for a Pelican by Stephen Goodhart. Goodhart. I wonder if that's his real name. (laughs) 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 One of my most memorable rescues was a huge pelican that I came upon while vacationing in Panama City, Florida. The poor creature had half a dozen fish hooks in him and had become so tangled up in fishing lines it couldn't fly and could barely tread water. It was in pretty bad shape and obviously weak from hunger because it couldn't fish. Since it was just off a jetty, I dove in and took it in my arms. The pelican didn't resist. It was either too weak or perhaps it sensed my good intent. It was a big bird and completely filled my arms. One of the things I most remember was how warm its great body felt next to mine. When I got the bird ashore, I began working to untangle it. Some curious people came over and I was able to borrow a knife to cut the nylon strands. A fisherman had some wire snips and I was able to cut off and remove all the embedded hooks too. Through all of this, the bird was quiet as if it knew it was being helped. As the curious left, I just held the great bird in my arms and did metta for it. It's been years now since this incident, so I don't remember the exact words I used in my meditation. But as in prayer, 
It's the thoughts and feelings that are important, not so much the form they take. My loving mental embrace of the bird went something like this. Dear bird, it makes me feel a little emotional, may you not be afraid. Because when I hear these words, I think about it for all of us. You know, the deep care and, and wish we have for all of us. Dear bird, may you not be afraid. May you feel safe. May you feel peace. May you feel loved and supported in your being and your life. Beloved being, beautiful bird, may your dear body be healed and strengthened. May you be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May you be happy and well. May this help I'm giving you be an open door to your freedom. May your wounds heal quickly. May you gain your strength quickly. May you have a good and long life beloved pelican, my friend, my winged brother. For about ten minutes, we just sat there together, and I embraced the bird with all my heart, with as limitless and unconditional love and compassion as was within me. As I meditated in advocacy for the bird's well-being, I could feel the bird relax. Finally, it turned its head and looked at me with a look I'll never forget. A long, steady gaze that somehow seemed to speak to some deep connection beyond all concepts of man and bird. I sensed the bird's gratitude, and then I knew somehow it would be okay, and I took it back to the water's edge. The big bird took to the water with what seemed to me to be great joy, It swam around strongly, but didn't move away from where I stood. The pelican paddled back close to me and gave one last long look. Then it paddled off to join some mates. My heart soared when, after some more rest, it took to the air and flew down the coast. My metta, my loving kindness, went with it. Dear great bird, may your wounds heal. May your needs be met. May you be safe from hooks and harm. May you have a good life. May we someday meet again. The heart opens. The mind relaxes and the heart opens. This is how it is. Let's sit together for a minute or two.
beloved being. May you not be afraid. May you feel safe. May you feel peace. May may you feel loved and supported in your being and in your life. We'll have about 15 minutes before the bell for the tea, and then we'll come back for the sitting. And again, we'll have some chanting towards the end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.